Welcome to the People's Forum podcast. My name is Jordan Camp. I'm Director of Research at the People's Forum. Today we have Vijay Prashad, Executive Director of Tricontinental, Institute for Social Research, and Chief Editor of Leftward Books. This episode features an extended full-length presentation from his comments at Holding the Future Hostage, a conference on hybrid wars, sanctions, and solidarity at the People's Forum on October 19th, 2019. The People's Forum is a movement incubator for working class and marginalized communities and an accessible educational and cultural space in New York City. Vijay is the author of 25 books, including The Darker Nations, A People's History of the Third World, and The Poorer Nations, A Possible History of the Global South. He's the editor of 10 volumes, including Land of Blue Helmets, The United Nations, and the Arab World. As a journalist, he writes regularly for The Hindu, Frontline, Alternate, and appears regularly on The Real News Network and Democracy Now! The topic of our podcast today is hybrid wars and U.S. imperialism. Without further ado, Vijay Prashad. Hello, friends. Uh, very nice to be with you. Uh, obviously, we're talking about difficult issues, and so uh, I'd like to just get straight to it. Um, I'm going to talk about the idea of the hybrid war and its um, mobilization against countries like Venezuela and Iran. But in order to get there, I think it's important to understand the very long history of um, the hybrid war, which comes under so many names um, in American uh, US um, military policy. It comes by names such as low intensity conflict. In fact, I'm going to read out a few of the names in which we've seen uh, the idea of hybrid war developed over the last 60 years. Small wars, counterinsurgency, foreign internal defense, low intensity conflict. This is my favorite now. Military operations other than war, which has its own acronym, MOOTWA, M-O-O-T-W, military operations other than war. Um, this goes back to, at least in the modern period, the formation of the CIA in 1948, and then the formation of the Special Forces in 1952. You know, it's one thing to have the CIA, but the Special Forces was in, important. It reports directly to the White House, um, running through the Pentagon. You have people trained essentially in a kind of warfare um, where you don't have to mobilize entire armies. You come in, you can assassinate, you come in, you can you know, put pressure on people, blackmail, and so on. So, you know, that's the world of hybrid war, and it has a very long history. It's important to understand that. Didn't start yesterday. Um, the idea of small wars is a little different than hybrid wars, but low-intensity conflict, military operations other than war, very important um, concept. Uh, I'd like us to spend some time as well uh, on some of the ideological pieces that come behind the idea of hybrid war. In 1962, the Kennedy administration released a document. Uh, we got to see it publicly much later, but they released it to the administration on so-called foreign internal defense. I'll come back to this in a minute. And in that document, they wrote, it is important for the United States to remain in the background and not to expose the United States unnecessarily 
to charges of interventionism and colonialism. It's a very important point. The United States, in other words, acknowledges that its policies are tantamount to interventionism and colonialism. The point isn't not to be colonial. The point is you don't want unnecessarily to expose yourself to the charges of colonialism. In other words, do things that are essentially colonial, but don't let yourself be seen as colonial. I think this is a fundamental part of the ideological world of the concept of the hybrid war. So before I get into some detail about the hybrid war, I'd like to just point out how has the US government been able to produce amnesia? How has it been able to produce this ability of being colonial without appearing colonial? So four very quick points. The first is the government and US history has promoted a sort of implicit faith in the United States government. You know, this idea that when the US government does something, uh, it's not doing it for, uh, you know, some nefarious motives. It's always doing it for good. Uh, you see this in our time where people will say when the US government bombs a country, it's doing it to save, you know, civilians. It's for humanitarian intervention. It's never for anything other than that. I remember during uh, the time when the United States which is really the heart of the North American um, treaty organization or NATO, when the US through NATO was bombing Libya, um, it bombed Libya with a UN United Nations uh, resolution, resolution 1973. Uh, this resolution asked for a review of the bombing. After the United States had completed the bombing through NATO, uh, questions were raised shouldn't NATO now come back to the United Nations with an after-action report? After all, it was part of the resolution. Peter Olson, uh, the lead um, lawyer of, the, uh, of NATO, lead counsel, wrote a letter to, uh, you know, essentially the UN, uh, but it was indirectly to Human Rights Watch, in which Olson said, you know, the United States or NATO never conducts war crimes. You can never see us as conductors of war crimes. Um, if you find any evidence of it, then it's accidental. In other words, barbarians, other countries, you know, Libya, the Libyan government, barbarians commit war crimes. The United States and NATO, but mainly the United States, never commits war crimes. It only bombs in a homeopathic way for human rights. In other words, the first way in which this amnesia is created is they produce an implicit faith in US power. When US utilizes its power, it's for the good. The second way in which this amnesia is created is the United States uh, says that it's always others that are doing bad things. You know, this Russia gate thing is very much part of it. Uh, when the United States overthrows a government, and the list is very long, Albania 1947, Italy, Greece, you know, Guatemala, Iran, it's a very long list. When the United States overthrows governments, well, you know, that's for the good. It's to uh, create the conditions for the free world. But when, say, Russia intervenes in a US election, my God, it's a scandal. You know, so this idea that the enemy is always somebody else, the bad actor is always somebody else, is a very much important part of the creation of amnesia. The third way in which amnesia is created is by a sort of surrender almost. The major cultural industries in the United States, including the academy, 
television media, print media and so on, those who shape opinion about particularly foreign policy have essentially a US State Department view of the world. They are essentially stenographers of US power. And when they're not, for instance, uh, Duke University and the University of North Carolina's Middle East program, pressure can be put on them. The re reason I say this, uh, use this example is it's of course most recent and it's public. But a lot of this pressure happens quietly. When you come to renew your grant from the US government for foreign language study, privately you are told you've got to be much more in line with US State Department values uh, if you're going to get your grant. So privately they control them in a way. But it, you don't even need to control. I mean, there's a, a, a self, uh, you know, censorship. And this self-censorship, you see this a lot in the television media, comes through seeking access from the State Department. If you want the first interview, you better play ball with them. You better have their point of view. But also this implicit faith in US power, point number one, uh, comes in here. And the culture industries essentially as people who uh, have this implicit faith, reproduce the State Department ideology. And finally, uh, very cleverly, there is a way in which the discourse of the conspiracy theory is mobilized. So that then, you know, those who believe, for instance, that the aliens are coming in and taking over parts of the US or that aliens collaborate with the US government, that sort of very far-fetched idea is put into the same a framework as people who say the United States uh, is conspired to do a coup against Venezuela. They'll say that these are all conspiracy theories. Now, the first one is, you know, I think to my mind more in the realm of the ridiculous, but by linking this one about aliens collaborating with the State Department or the Pentagon in Area 54, uh, this, you know, what is really quite a ridiculous idea is linked to an idea which is that the United States has a conspiracy to overthrow the government of Venezuela, very credible, high, you know, easily to document and so on. But by linking these two, you create now the sense that this argument is ridiculous. That the argument that the United States is deliberately trying to overthrow a government is a ridiculous argument. Well, if the United States is trying to, and because of implicit faith in US power, then it may be a good thing. So you, you have it both ways. You say, well, yes, the US is trying to, but only for human rights. Or you're crazy for suggesting that the US government is trying to overthrow. Because you're somehow now like people who believe that the Pentagon and the aliens have a special office, uh, liaison office together. So suddenly all these things are called conspiracy theories and they are dismissed. It's a very clever way to ideologically create, uh, you know, to delegitimize a criticism of US foreign policy. So this is a, a part where I would call, you know, the production of amnesia. Um, it's a very important part of the hybrid war. The hybrid war requires the ideological terrain uh, to be commanded by the US government. And it, the government has been extremely successful uh, in this way. You know, uh, media houses and so on, they essentially uh, prefer to have retired generals talk about foreign policy than people who are critics of the government. It's extremely uh, normal to see that, uh, you know, as the way that they operate. Now, to pivot back the idea of the hybrid war, I'd like to just suggest maybe two or three concepts that we need to bear in mind. Um, and these concepts are about the goals, the basically, not publicly, because these are internal US documents, but these are 
the goals shared by people inside the US State Department, the Pentagon, the various uh, departments of, of defense, you know, in Defense Intelligence Agency, National Security Council, and so on. This is a shared understanding. From the first concept that I'd like to put on the table is the concept of primacy. You know, from the 1940s, uh, I'm going to read from a document, 1947. From the 1940s, the US government has made it clear that the goal of US foreign policy is to seek this concept which they call primacy. You know, that the US must be have primacy over the world. And this statement from a State Department document, 1947, makes this clear. They say, to seek less than preponderant power would be to opt for defeat. In other words, the point isn't to have, you know, a balance of power in the world or anything. It's to seek preponderant power to seek primacy preponderant power must be the object of u.s policy you know i'm not saying that the u.s government is seeking preponderant power the u.s government has said this in 1947 and then the evidence indicates that they have you know con consistently attempted to attain this objective whether it's overthrowing governments in iran or in chile in 1973 whether it's trying to utilize international agencies to funnel U.S. interests through them, you know, the IMF, the World Bank, uh, creating groups like the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development, the OECD in 1961, creating the Group of Seven Countries in 1974. I mean, each of these institutional arrangements are, in a sense, vehicles for pushing American power through them. So the U.S. policy is primacy, and the evidence suggests that the U.S. government has sought primacy. So that's the first concept I want to put on the table. If you go back and think about this amnesia, you know, I, you never hear this kind of discussion in the culture industries, in the televisions or in print media, and very rarely in the academy do people start with a discussion, you know, in a class on U.S. foreign policy, that the objective is, you know, to seek primacy. Generally, in a U.S. foreign policy class, you'll start by talking about the different methods of understanding foreign policy, the realist method, the idealist method, etc. By the time you've gone through two weeks of method, your mind is entirely battered by, you know, uh, this sort of realist thinking. And you don't have a good grasp that underneath all this is the seek is seeking for preponderant power. As they say, preponderant power must be the objective of U.S. policy. If I taught this class, I'd say, let's discuss that on the first day. But no, it doesn't even come up. The second concept, you have primacy first. Second concept is stability. It's an important concept. Um, in that Kennedy report from 1962, uh, they say that the U.S. government must immunize vulnerable societies. Now, I'd just like to make a point on the side before coming back to this. We periodize U.S. foreign policy. On the one side, you say there's the Cold War. The other side is the war on terror. And the gap is somewhere in the 1990s. You know, the Cold War, 1945 to the 1990s. And then from the 1990s onward, war on terror. In fact, I would say this is a completely erroneous periodization. This is one long period where it's a war against the United States seeking primacy on the one hand and the forces of decolonization on the other. That's the real battle. The real battle is between the North and the South. And things like resource extraction and so on play a huge role. 
Why did the US government overthrow Arbenz in Guatemala in 1954? Well, because Arbenz was going to nationalize United Fruit, a major um, US-based multinational. Um, why did they overthrow Mohammad Mossadegh in Iran in 53? Because Mossadegh was going to nationalize the oil fields and, and oil installations. Why did they overthrow uh, Allende in Chile in 1973? Because Allende and the United Left movement was going to nationalize copper and telecommunications. And that was just not possible. And American-based multinationals basically pushed Nixon to overthrow the government uh, through methodologies not directly with the US intervention, but by, as Nixon said, making the economy scream. In other words, using financial pressure. And on the other side, asking the um, Chilean military, led by Augusto Pinochet, to leave the barracks and overthrow the government. The United States could say, remember this, from Kennedy in 1962, we don't want to expose ourselves unnecessarily to charges of intervention and colonialism. When you read the correspondence between Nixon and Kissinger around the overthrow of Chile, they say to each other, we cannot allow our fingerprints to be on this coup d'etat. 20 years later, let it be public knowledge. But at the time, we don't want it to be public. It's very important to understand that, that this um, period from 1945 to the present is a fight between US imperialism on the one side, seeking preponderant power, and on the other side, you have these people who are trying to use their resources uh, to make some social wealth, to produce some form of social development. And every time they make a move, whether it's to do with fruit, whether it's to do with oil, whether it's to do with copper, they are simply not prevented. Various forms of war, military operations other than war, are used against them. Governments are overthrown and the resources are taken. This is a war in that sense against between imperialism and decolonization. And it's been going on at least since the 1940s. So this idea of stability, what did the governments of the United States do? You see, from very early, the point was, you don't want US troops to always enter. You want to Cubanize the conflict. 1961, attempt on Cuba through Bay of Pigs. Those were Cubans who landed there. Cubanized the conflict. In Vietnam, the Nixon administration tried to Vietnamize the conflict. You don't necessarily want to land US troops there. You want Vietnamese people to do your work for you. Or you want people, for instance, in, in Laos and Cambodia to be hired as mercenaries to do your work for you. All of this is familiar now. What's happening in Venezuela, you, you want to Venezuelanize the conflict. You want to create sharp divides in Venezuelan society. Let one faction of the bourgeoisie create, let's say, unrest in the country. Let them come in and do it. So Cubanize, Vietnamize, Venezuelanize. What does stability mean? And here we come to this Cubanize, Venezuelanize, and Vietnamize. What does stability mean? It means the concept of internal defense. This is the concept used by the US government from the 1950s, internal defense. The concept of internal defense, they say, is to give governments over there in, you know, uh, let's say Chile and so on, the ability to maintain internal order. In other words, the US government will collaborate with dictators, authoritarians, monarchs, whatever it is, to create internal order. You'll have the sale of arms to these governments. You'll have what are known as international military education and training programs, or IMET, where 
you know, soldiers from Panama, people like Manuel Noriega will come to Fort Benning. They'll be trained and they will do the dirty work for the United States, maintaining order in those societies. What does order mean? Order means imperialism, the opposite of decolonization. You don't want those people to control their own resources. So you have these proxy groups, whether Manuel Noriega in Panama or Augusto Pinochet in Chile. You have these people essentially operate on behalf of the United States to create an authoritarian order so that the resources can be extracted. And if you don't uh, accede to US preponderant power or to primacy, then all methods can be used to overthrow you. And that's where this, you know, a hybrid war becomes more and more sophisticated. On the one side, it's a communication war. Let's take Venezuela as an example in the time remaining. Um, you know, you have a communication war. You have to say that Maduro is a dictator. Uh, you have to demonstrate that Maduro is not fit to govern. Doesn't matter that he has, you know, um, the support of half, three quarters of the Venezuela. Doesn't matter. He has to be shown to be singular. And the whole Venezuelan people are against him. And he is using authoritarian violence to hold them down. I mean, this is the first thing you have to do. You have to create a kind of cultural, historical, ideological uh, delegitimization of the government. And then the whole media has to collaborate in this. You know, uh, people even who feel they have some small criticism of the government uh, come to the view that no, no, he has to be overthrown. He has to go. Maduro has to go. Castro has to go, you know, that becomes the mantra, Assad has to go and so on. So you delegitimize the government as it stands. That's a cultural, historical and ideological uh, game you play. Then you have to create distress inside the country. In fact, um, in the dossier we did on Venezuela and hybrid wars in Latin America, we quote, um, you know, uh, these, uh, you know, important US documents, well, one of them is from a former ambassador, William Broomfield, who said last year, he said, perhaps the best solution, now he's talking about the people of Venezuela, he says, perhaps the best solution would be to accelerate the collapse. We should do it understanding that it's going to have an impact on millions and millions of people who are already having great difficulty finding enough to eat. In other words, we're going to use um, financial techniques to create unrest inside Venezuela. So first, you've got to delegitimize the government. Second, you have to create economic and social unrest, divide the population. Doesn't matter that it's going to have an impact on millions and millions of people who are already having a difficult time finding enough to eat. The consequences don't matter. Create immense distress in the country. When you've created immense distress, fractures will start to happen among those who support the government. You will therefore then start to delegitimize not only historically, culturally, ideologically, but also socially. You will create social and economic distress. And now third, you support some non-entity, you know, like in this case, Juan Guaido, relatively unknown person, and say that he commands the loyalty of the people. You use every resource possible to put him as the, uh, the, the legitimate ruler. You know, this is the pretender ruler, as they used to say in the times of monarchy. Uh, you have this person suddenly and you build him up, you give him international support, diplomatic support and so on. Sabotage operations can take place, military pressure can come if you don't, you can tell the government, if you don't get out of power, we'll overthrow you by force. 
And there's examples of this. There's Brazil in 1964, where you know there was uh, the U.S. warships sat off the coast of Brazil, and those warships put pressure on the government in order to facilitate the coup. Um, you had the mining of Managua Harbor in Nicaragua in 1979, trying to put pressure on the young government led by Daniel Ortega. Revolutionaries had taken power. You put U.S. military pressure out. It's called gunboat diplomacy, and it's very effective in delegitimizing and creating terror inside a country. So, this is the kind of game plan, as we say, against a country like Venezuela. And here, sanctions play a major role. Because, you know, in this point where you have the creating of distress inside the country, the kind of fracturing of society, you use weapons like sanctions, uh, financial sanctions, economic sanctions, individual sanctions, you use these to put the pressure on the country. You know, as Nixon said of, uh, of Chile, you make the economy scream, you fracture the country, you create distress, even if it means millions and millions of people who are already having great difficulty finding enough to eat. But to put this all together, uh, you have the situation of Venezuela, you have the situation of Iran. I had earlier just said that what we have since the 1940s is a war between imperialism and the forces of decolonization. What makes Venezuela such a problem for places like the United States is that from when Chavez came to power in the late 1990s in an election, uh, he has attempted to use the resources of Venezuela to better the lives of the Venezuelan people and the people of what is known as Patria Grande across um, Latin America. And that was an obscenity as far as the oil companies were concerned, and the other mining companies. You know, Peter Monk, who was the founder of Barrick Gold, the Canadian company, wrote a letter to the Financial Times viciously writing of Chavez as a dictator. Why? Because Chavez was trying to change the agreements the previous government had made with the mining companies. That's why he was a dictator. He was a dictator not against his own people, but against the multinational corporations. And that's why he needed to be overthrown. I mean, I want this to be uh, put right down there. That the point I'm making is this battle between the forces of imperialism, including, of course, the multinational corporations, and decolonization, which is a process of very much uh, part of the, the project of Bolivarian project of Hugo Chavez uh, and the other states in Latin America. It's a fight between these two tendencies of imperialism and decolonization. And the method methodology of military operations other than war or hybrid war is used against the forces of decolonization. And part of that, uh, those operations is the creation of a kind of amnesia about American power, an amnesia about the goals of American power, an implicit faith in American power. And then this belief that people have that they'll say, well, you know, I just don't like Maduro. He has to go. I mean, who asked your opinion? But he has to go. And, you know, I may not like Trump, but it's okay. Let Trump and, you know, previously Bolton and Pompeo. I mean, these kind of gangstery characters who operate on behalf of multinational corporations. I trust them more than I trust Maduro. I mean, that is an extraordinary place we are in. And it's because you see this view so commonly held. Because of that, you know that the concept of the hybrid war is not merely, you know, for the textbooks of political science. Uh, but indeed, it's a reality.
in the earlier period from let's say the 1940s to the 1980s before the collapse of the USSR uh, solidarity was international solidarity was a much easier concept to understand because it was clearer that there was at least from the global south that there was a two line struggle there was on the one side uh, the force of imperialism and on the other side there was the force of say the third world project or decolonization or what have you it was a much clearer um, political divide there were institutions of the third world that were active in this in 1961 in the united nations in fact um, a, a resolution was passed by the general assembly in which there's a line which you know for me captures it beautifully the line is the process of liberation is irresistible i mean you know you cannot imagine after the fall of the soviet union the collapse of the third world project you cannot imagine a line like that written by the countries of the global south collectively uh, to champion uh, uh, you know solidarity for decolonization national liberation and so on after the 1990s an immense fragmentation takes place among states inside social movements and a new influence comes Uh, particularly from the cultural industries of the west to delegitimize national liberation as a project to delegitimize you know uh, governments and peoples uh, who are fighting for justice you know it's it's very interesting how so rapidly in in a few few years you move from uh, you know a political force that says the process of liberation is irresistible uh, to people who say well look all we can do is maybe improve the water quality somewhere all we can do is you know help some people get literacy or housing all important issues but they are fragmented no longer part of a project uh, called say liberation or national liberation or emancipation of peoples i mean these concepts start to by themselves appear naive and you can mock the person who talks about emancipation or you know revolutionary change you know you sound ridiculous in this period because they have made you ridiculous in the 1940s 50s 60s 70s 80s there were institutions uh, popular movements that had made these ideas absolutely legitimate it was legitimate to talk about liberation after the 1990s liberation itself becomes a curious term and this is why international solidarity now is so difficult it's not just that well you know people are busy or they you know on their iphones it's not that it's that the political context has changed from the context where solidarity for international liberation was you know a legitimate thing because international uh, solidarity was backing something that was legitimate which was liberation emancipation socialism and so on the what was what your solidarity was for was itself legitimate now you can have international solidarity but it's not for the same kinds of things you know you can have international solidarity saying i uh, you know i'm in solidarity to get somebody removed from prison somewhere or i'm in solidarity for people uh, to have good drinking water you know i'm in solidarity against the climate being destroyed you can have a big climate strike and so on these things are possible so in other words it's not the solidarity that has disappeared the international solidarity that carries over it's what are you in solidarity for in this new period being in solidarity for the forces of decolonization has been delegitimized that's the main point i think we should uh, consider 
Why is it that people have such a hard time now being in favor of countries or movements that have a strong decolonization uh, philosophy or position? Um, because the idea of decolonization now uh, sounds ridiculous to lots of people. As a consequence of the erosion of faith in this idea by the culture industries which are so close to the US State Department. I mean, even consider the fight for the liberation of Palestine. Um, even the BDS movement and other strong movements, uh, even these movements, they are so strongly attacked. You know, uh, people attack them on the grounds of anti-Semitism or whatever, that it's hard for them to sustain themselves and become mass movements you know, of a kind that were there for Cuba, for instance, before the fall of the Soviet Union. Mass solidarity campaign for Cuba, mass solidarity campaign in solidarity with the people of Vietnam in their war against the United States. You just don't see that any longer for decolonization struggles. It's one thing to argue for the Palestinian prisoners on human rights grounds, but to say we demand the decolonization of Palestine, not a legitimate. That's not only because of Palestine, that's because the concept of decolonization has been delegitimized. It's so important, therefore, for us to understand um, if we're going to uh, reanimate international solidarity for decolonization, if you want to have a solidarity campaign for Venezuela, for instance, you have to fight for the idea of decolonization, the right of people the Venezuelan people to control their resources, to control their destiny. I mean, this has to be fought for. It's not that you're fighting for the government or you're fighting for this or that. You're fighting for the project of decolonization. You're fighting for the people of Western Sahara. You're fighting for the Palestinians. You're fighting for the Cubans. You're fighting for people who want to chart a path, you know, that's different from the path that's placed upon them by the imperialist bloc, including the IMF and others. You know, Argentina has an election. That election is between the forces of, the, of imperialism and the IMF, the government of Mr. Macri, you know, uh, on the one side, and then the forces of decolonization on the other. You've got to add in um, the bloc of uh, Patria Grande, Frente Patria Grande, of course the um, Peronists and others, you know, they want to control their resources in order, in order to produce a society where people are not starving, where their currency is, you know, deteriorated terribly, where it's difficult to mobilize basic resources to take care of, you know, basic human needs. I mean, that's the fight. And that's how we need to understand it. This is not a fight in just one country or, you know, against one adversary. This is a much broader fight in, in real terms to save humanity and the planet. It's a fight between imperialism and decolonization. Now, if you want to stand with imperialism, that's fine. And, you know, you can make it clear and, and go in that direction. But if you believe in the forces of decolonization, it's really important to stand up and say so. I mean, you know, uh, people somehow feel that there's a kind of naivete or they don't want to, you know, uh, stand up. They would prefer to have a more nuanced understanding of the world. You know, nuance is important and fine in analysis and appreciating things. But sometimes in politics, nuance has its problems, you know. Uh, to be nuanced on the situation in Venezuela uh, leaves you in the middle. And, you know, as people like Howard Zinn said quite clearly, you can't be neutral on a moving train. It's difficult to be nuanced when a country is facing the kind of hybrid war that Venezuela is facing. On the one side, you have the forces of imperialism. They are quite clear and easy to identify. 
On the other side, you have the forces of decolonization. And that's the people of Venezuela, the bulk of the poor Afro-Venezuelans who back the government because they see the government as a shield against imperialism. You have some problems with the government, that's fine. Uh, you should articulate them. Uh, you should make it clear that, you know, there are ways to improve the situation, whatever. That's okay. That's fine. But that's not a reason to go to the camp of imperialism. You know, Fidel Castro used to say, if you make a criticism of Cuba, it depends on your outlook, on how you are criticizing. Castro said, if you are inside the revolution, if you are for the revolution and you make a criticism, that's fine. Criticism inside the revolution, totally acceptable. Criticism against the revolution, totally unacceptable. Because then you're essentially saying, I'm in the camp who wants to overthrow the revolution. I'm in the camp of imperialism. That's okay. You're welcome to join that camp. One should be clear about this. In a time of intense struggle, when there's an attempt to overthrow a government, there really are only two camps. You know, there is no third way. There is no other option. Uh, now, once uh, the forces of revolution are able to prevail, then they must deepen the revolution. Criticism must come from inside the revolution. You must deepen it. But at the time of this intense tension, to say that I'm neutral or I'm uninterested, puts you into the camp of imperialism. And as I said, that is an option. It is a legitimate option. It's not for me. Uh, I fundamentally and firmly believe in the process of decolonization, that 1961 UN resolution is basically a resolution that I think is my motto. And it says again, just to repeat it, and I'm going to close with this because I'd really like you to uh, reflect on this, this statement, this sentence. The sentence is, the process of liberation is irresistible. The process of liberation is irresistible. In other words, it is irresistible in so many different ways. It's irresistible because how can you not resist being part of the process of liberation? Why would you want to be with the oppressor? Why not with the oppressed? It's irresistible. And the other side of irresistible is it will prevail because you, know, you cannot resist it. You cannot fight against it. The people will eventually prevail. The future is for humanity. The choice is either you're for humanity or you're for death. Uh, if the future is for death, well, then there's no question of um, you know, uh, being a victor. Everybody is going to die. If the future is for humanity, that's the irresistible. So the process of liberation is irresistible.